But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Ye then be risen with Christ, seek those which are those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Inspire <clears throat> our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us pray. This evening, God above, again, we are thankful for a Lord's Day, a beautiful Lord's Day, God, watching over us and preserving our travels, Lord, and again, giving us a place of worship. We ask, God, that you would be with your church, not with just ours, but all churches across this nation to protect them uh, legally and many other ways, Lord, financially, uh, from the many enemies that we have more and more in our own home country. And so, God, we pray not only for our church and her ability to preach and to bring spread the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ among her own people, uh, but also, Lord, for our families and children within the church, God, to watch over them, to protect them, Lord, and to give us the providential means to do what we can to provide for them, uh, not only for food and shelter, Lord, but again, for protection from those uh, wicked and evil people who especially prey upon children, God, uh, who are singing and saying soothing words, Lord, uh, to lower our defenses and to rewrite uh, laws and expectations, Lord, as we know, going across this nation. So, God, we pray again for our protection and that you would raise up uh, men and leaders across this nation, locally, nationally, uh, even if they are not Christians, Lord, that will be used in your providence to protect us. Our God and Savior, we pray for our calling has your children as stewards, Lord, those who are called to take care of the things you have given us, God, uh, the families that we have, our children, Lord, many possessions that we have, uh, time, talent, and money, all these things, Lord, are ultimately yours. You have given, to them, given them to us as stewards, Lord, that we may use them aright, that we may husband them in our proper manner, God, that they would be used for the glory of God, for the help of the saints, for the good of our family. Lord Jesus, may we have such a heart and attitude in ourselves, Lord, and teach our children and our grandchildren, Lord, to approach the things of this world, Lord, not as things that possess us, but that rather we possess them and use them, and use them for your glory. So, God above, we are again thankful for the many things you have given us that we can be stewards of. May we repent uh, of any such sloppiness or indifference in this regard, God. Help us have wisdom uh, to balance our time and money and talents and possessions that we have, God, Again, for the proper use and proportion to our ourselves, our loved ones, and our family, God above, for our friends, for the church of God, for those around us. We pray in a similar manner, Lord, for our health, which is something we are to steward as well. And we pray, God, that we would continue to take care of ourselves, uh, Lord, as you command us in your word, uh, to eat aright, to exercise as we can, Lord, to avoid unnecessary dangers and the like, God. We pray for those um Indeed, most of us who do travel, God, to continue to watch over us as we drive in our cars or walk on the way to work, God, uh, from people who are irresponsible. We thank you, Lord, again, for protecting us from many damages and hurtful things happen to our bodies, Lord, within a short radius of our own home. We pray, God, for continued health, that those who are chronically ill and sick and dealing with other sicknesses, God, would heal and would certainly not give up, but persevere, Lord, as saints of the Lord, God, with hope and their victorious king, and to raise them up from the dead with a better body. And so, precious Lord, may we take these things one day at a time. You know, the calling of our life is both physical health, but especially spiritual health, Lord, insofar as it is unto godliness. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to take care of our body and for our soul and for this evening worship. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9.
verses 9 through 11. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. Let us pray. With these encouraging words, God, we see the great vision of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament perspective. Help us, Lord, to understand it aright, to be encouraged by it, uh, Lord, and to be strengthened by it for our work this week. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Do you recall Zechariah, the prophet, wrote these words during a time when a small band of believers returned to Jerusalem after seven years in captivity. Some did remain back in the pagan land of Babylon. In the land, they discovered how much work was needed in Palestine to resettle the land and especially to rebuild the temple and how discouraging that would be and how much work that was involved. Many of the chapters thus far are visions of encouragement to rebuild the temple that God is with them should not give up. But they also discover enemies from within and enemies from without as well. Enemies from within are other Jews who are treating their fellow Jews like dirt, as we read in chapter 7 and part of 8, oppressing them, economic oppression in particular. Zechariah reprimands them twice in the last two chapters because of that. Now Zechariah is dealing with the enemies from without. They are harassing Israel, apparently. The faithful Jews are discouraged, but all is not lost as they are given this grand vision of the triumphant king, as we read in the prior verses here of chapter 9, conquering the enemies, rolling over them from the north down to the south to the Mediterranean, marching and destroying and even converting. And it's wonderful news from Zechariah to the Jews. God is in control. The enemies will be conquered. But that vision includes that oddity, as I just mentioned, the conversion of the Gentiles. And some of the Jews, apparently, would probably scratch their heads. And in fact, some of the Gentiles would even lead the great tribe of Judah, we read. They'd be chiefs of Judah. And I wonder how many figured out what was going on, or they just kind of glossed over it and missed that point. Now, in this continued grand vision, we see a king in all his splendor, the king who was conquering, now coming to them. And you can imagine that they are expecting this vision to unfold with the majesty and the glory of the great king upon a great steed with a great army behind him. But instead, they hear of a king on a lowly donkey. Meanest, uh, that is the most insignificant and the least of all the work animals. It was a child of a donkey, that is a little donkey, not grown up. This is the great king of Israel riding on a donkey. As we look more carefully in these verses, we'll get a better idea of what it means to be a great and yet humble king who brings us the victory. So in verse 9, we have a picture of this uh, humility of our Lord and Savior, and they're told to rejoice. So after they're given this great vision, uh, how he will come down from the north, destroy the enemies, and even convert some of them unto their own. And in verse 8, I will encamp around my house, God will be their guardian. He will be the watchman on the tower. 
He will protect them. This is great. They're excited. And then he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is great. This is exciting. You should be happy. Your king is coming. And why are they happy? Because it's going to be a friendly visit? Have a nice little tea time with, with their Lord and Savior? No, because he's coming to conquer the enemies and deliver them and protect them and usher in the greatness of his age and kingdom. The king is coming in power and victory, we saw in the first eight verses, to stomp out the enemies, to build up and protect the followers, and even bring more followers unto him. In particular, that means at the time of Zechariah that the enemies will not succeed in stopping them from building the temple. Rejoice oh, greatly, O daughters of Zion. Your king is here. Why? He's here to protect you. He's here to help you finish your job at hand. Don't despair. The enemies will not stop them from resettling the promised land either. They shall not be kicked out, nor squished, nor destroyed. This is what they're expecting. That's part of why they are rejoicing. The king is coming. Your king is coming to you. Promise king of Judah will come and establish an eternal kingdom is what they're hoping. Lion of Judah. To crush all enemies and to establish peace forever and ever. But as we know, this vision is about the first coming of Christ, not the immediate coming of a king at the time of Zechariah, but rather the future king, several hundred years later, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the king who is coming to us, and we should rejoice, yes, greatly, as they were called to rejoice then. The establishment of a kingdom, but in a way not expected at all from the Jews at that time, and especially at the time of Jesus. They were, in fact, not just amazed, but appalled that their King Jesus would come the way he came in such humility. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. That is us today as we rejoice in Jesus Christ, as we understand the import of this verse in these verses ahead of time already, what it means how it paints the picture of who Jesus is and what to expect in his humility. But let's look at some particulars here. Behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming. Not any king, but the king who has promised to deliver them and to deliver us today. Your king shows the eternal bond between the church and Christ, that phrase, your king. Like when you say your husband and your wife, emphasizing the important and personal relationship personal relationship insofar as he is the king and we are his subjects. He is also our father. He's our father king. And therefore we have comfort and protection from him. What about this king? Why should we rejoice? And they're expecting the rebuilding of the temple, resettling of the land. They should rejoice in that to be sure. But he gives some particular reasons. He is just in having salvation. A just king, that is one of the best descriptions any citizen wanted to hear of their own king, that he is just. The king of ours is different from many other kings, to be sure, for he is absolutely just at all times, morally perfectly upright, without any flaw. There was a king during the time of the Christian persecution my family read about this afternoon, after Domitian, so during the time of Ignatius, so, I don't know, mid-100s, I think, and he was considered a just king, Trajan was his name, except he had one slight problem. He didn't like Christians. Heathenism was fading away because more and more converts were coming, priests were being converted, and the temples were being emptied. And he didn't like that. 
Not enough money, but some of the more pious, of course, believed it would bring a curse upon them. And Trajan was described at that time as a just king, unlike Domitian or Nero before him. And yet he had one small problem. It wasn't a small problem. It was a major problem. He hated Christ and his church. And that's what we have. Many kings, many presidents, many leaders throughout time. They can be just, just, just. We can say they're great king, kings and great presidents. President Washington, for example. And yet they all had a problem. None of them were perfect. None of them were morally upright. None of them were absolutely just the way Jesus Christ is just. And all that he does. He is a saving king. A just He is just in having salvation and actually bringing salvation and deliverance. If God did not save us, he would not be just. I think the two ideas are related here. He is just in having salvation because he had promised to deliver his people. And if he did not, he would not be just. God is faithful and true. He is not unjust, remembering your good works. We read in Hebrews 10. Same here. Part of his justice is doing exactly what he said he would do for his people. Do not forget that. <clears throat> and bring the salvation to his people. Of course, in particular, the first thing on their mind was the salvation of the temple, of the salvation of their land, and the deliverance from their overt physical material enemies. And that is a real concern. That's a prayer that we have. And we should not shy away from such a prayer today. As we are getting more actual enemies that way in America. <clears throat> but we know the ultimate deliverance that they get at the time is for their soul. When Christ comes, for the soul. The deliverance of the body, the deliverance from the enemies of the world will not be complete until Christ returns as a great judge in the second coming. And all those who hated the church shall be judged. They will be judged. But we, meanwhile, all those who are enemies can be converted, as we read <laughs> a few verses earlier. And even become chief leaders in the house of God. If they would but repent and believe and trust in this saving king who is delivering us from the devil's empire, the devil's kingdom in particular. The worldly kingdoms are but manifestations of the devil's empire in many regards with respect to many of their moral acts to one degree or another. Although we wouldn't call them the devil's kingdom per se, so far as we're you know called to never obey and submit to them. We were called to submit, even to unbelievers. And as the historian reminded us, it was a Dutch historian, reminded us that the Christians submitted to Trajan, just not offering offerings to him. They would not give offerings to him as a god, because he was not a god. They did everything else. We were called to do the same thing, and follow, indeed, or follow our humble king, as we see here, a cult. He comes having salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This great king, who is rolling over the enemies of God from the north down into the south, into Palestine, into the coastal cities, wiping them out so they'll never be inhabited again, and they have not, many of them. And you would expect a stately horse, a chariot, a procession, trumpets and soldiers, and yet here he is, coming down on a lowly donkey, and not just any donkey, but a young male donkey, not fully grown. Can't even do the full work of a, an adult donkey. And in fact, uh, one uh, professor described the female donkey as the choice of donkeys. And you'll see that in the Old Testament a number of times when they're trading in donkeys and whatnot, and it's the female donkey. They're apparently worth more. Uh, probably for their value of milking, and of course offspring, 
and more comfortable to ride, apparently. So the full male donkey is just a workhorse. You get more out of the female donkey. So what do you get out of the young male donkey who's not fully, fully grown? You get neither of them. So you get the lowliest of many of these animals. Something certainly not worthy of a great king. Why is our king riding on a lowly donkey? Because he is humble. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we see many ways by which Jesus was humble here. First of all, Jesus hid his glory. The world did not fully understand who he was. His own followers didn't even understand who he was. So that is a form of humility, like, you know, the prince and the pauper. They swap positions, and no one knows he's the prince or the king coming down among his people. It's hard to grasp again because we have, frankly, so little respect for our presidents, it seems to me, the way that people would respect or at least fear a king. And we expect him to be like one of us, right? Having the last few presidents always had a, a beer and sat down with the people and talked with them or had pizza or something and whatever else to show that they're one of us. We kind of demand that in some regards, even if it's not really done, it's done for show. <clears throat> Jesus did this, so he hid his glory, his prerogatives, where he said, I can bring and call 10,000, 10,000 angels to wipe these people out, and I'm not going to do it. Remember that? That's how he shows his humility. And in particular here, verse 2, and being found in the appearance as a man, he became a man. God took the body and soul of a man. It'd be like us taking the body and soul of, I don't know, a gnat. Right? That moral equivalence, is, that's, that's very humbling. That brings you, brings you down. It doesn't bring God down, of course, in that moral sense, but it is a humbling act objectively. He should not need to do that. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So not only did he become a man, the great incarnation of the second member of the Trinity, and walk among us, and eat with us, and talk with us, but he died for us. He didn't need to die. He did nothing wrong. He was perfect. He's a just king, bringing salvation. And yet he humbled himself so that he would die instead of you dying. That's the picture of the lowliness of Christ, of the humbleness of our God and Savior. Some people had taken Philippians 2, 7 and 8 to talk about somehow God or Jesus Christ stopped becoming God or something. No, he didn't stop becoming God. None of that. He actually exercised God activities. He had foreknowledge. Men don't have foreknowledge. God does. No, no, that's not what the humility is at all. It's the Royal prerogatives he did not always exercise, how he hid his glory, and how, in fact, he became a man and died when he did not need to die. That's the lowliness of our great God and King. And that's the way he subdued the devil's kingdom. I think he'd wipe it out and rage and glory, but he came and lowliness, and he beat the devil, didn't he? And he delivered us, praise be to God. It's an astonishing vision. <laughs> Can you imagine being a Jew back then going, I don't get this because David certainly didn't walk around or you know, ride around on a donkey. <clears throat> he had his armies 
Uh, he had his stately processions. He was the great king. What is this king that we are reading about here? By the time of Jesus, of course, most of the Jews were offended by Jesus' humility. How can our king, how can this really be our king? This is offensive. We are more, we are worth more than this kind of a king, I think is the way we would say it today. How can he be our king acting this way, not taking on the Roman Empire, not delivering us from economical hard, hardship and difficulties, because they were certainly oppressed as many were by the Roman Empire. We don't want this. In other words, we don't deserve this. We don't think this is worthy of our time and attention. Because they were what? The Jews, especially the Pharisees, were prideful. Couldn't wrap their head around this king of theirs to be so humble, to be so lowly, to even ride on a donkey. The humility of Christ was used to show the pride of the Jews. It exposed their hearts as lovers of this world, of the fame and the prestige of man. Now, the humility or the lowliness of Christ, I know that word humility is, I think, much abused or misunderstood in American uh, Christian circles. Jesus is humble. Jesus is lowly. And yet, Jesus (laughs) didn't let people push him around. Uh, Jesus reprimanded the Pharisees. Jesus trapped them with their own words. He didn't feel sorry for them that way. Oh, I guess he's too harsh. Jesus drove out the money changers with a whip. And yet, in all of that, he was humble. Part of humility, at least from the human perspective, that is, when I describe a Christian as being humble, you are humble, is knowing your place in God's kingdom. Accepting your place in God's kingdom and exercising in accordance to that position in God's kingdom. And it's not humble if you are a member of the church pretending to be a pastor, right? Or a pastor pretending to be a member of the church, or a parishioner, and not preaching, and not doing his duty. Neither person is doing the right thing. Neither one is being humble. Christ was being humble. He knew exactly what he was supposed to do, and he did it. The second point, a victorious king I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He stops war. There will be no need for horses and chariots. He cuts them off, not to make Israel defenseless or the like, but rather because you don't need them anymore. You don't need chariots. You don't need horsemen and soldiers and the bow. If there's peace, that's the picture here. Not that God's, you know, stealing chariots or something and horses. And, no, there's just no need for them anymore. Because he is a, a bringer of peace, the peace of the nations. <laughs> right? We had the League of the Nations that turned into the United Nations, that turned into a fiasco for today. Well, here we have the original peace of the nations, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Matthew Henry describes this, The speaking of peace to the heathen from for Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off, as you recall, and to those that were nigh, and so established his kingdom by proclaiming on earth peace and goodwill towards men. The first and primary peace that Christ came to bring, because this is clearly a prophecy of Christ, the peace of our soul with respect to God. Salvation. That's the emphasis. I mentioned that before. They're expecting deliverance from their enemies. God did give them deliverance, but God said that's, that's only a foretaste of the real deliverance of your soul from the bondage of the devil's empire and kingdom. And same with this, this peace 
and no, no more battle bows, no more chariots, no more horses and the like. Or as Isaiah describes, the beating of swords into plowshares. We don't need swords anymore. We use them for something more useful and productive, like tilling the earth and feeding people and peaceful activities like that. And in Psalm um, 72 we read, His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. And so we read here, His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As a picture of the breath of God's kingdom, of Christ's kingdom in this present age. Back then, of course, they wanted and they expected to get back their land, and they, they did it one time, they lost it, they got it again. But the pious of them knew the land was only a picture, a visible representation of the spiritual reality of God's kingdom already. That they, the pious of them knew, even in Babylon, they were in God's rule and protected by him. Daniel's vision showed that very clearly. God always had a spiritual kingdom. But he used the visible kingdom to teach them and to instruct them and to protect the church as we pray for our nation to protect the church as well. And so this vision here from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth is a picture of the growth of the gospel, of the preaching of the gospel as the instrument of the king to spread his rule in the hearts of his subjects. Wherever the gospel goes, so goes the kingdom of Christ. The fullness of the kingdom will be at Christ's second coming, of course, wherein peace will be everywhere and everlasting. The peace they had here from their enemies, from the uh, Assyrians, from the Babylonians, of course, was temporary. Then Alexander the Great comes along and conquers them. The Romans come along and conquer that empire. Knowing that it's temporary, experiencing the deliverance as temporary, they should have realized it was never about the temporary deliverance, but pointed to something greater. And, of course, the great hint here is that this king comes riding lowly and riding on a donkey which is certainly not something you expect the king to do, uh, nor would I advise it. I don't think somehow if we had uh, a royalty or England, right, with their king and queen, then we should advise them, well, if you really want to be humble like Jesus, you, you should ride on a donkey. No, it's something special for Jesus. Again, in, in, in particular for the Jews, to show them their pride. This peace, when Christ comes, will be everywhere and everlasting in all the hearts of the subject. And we long for that day. Now the peace, outward manifestation of the inward peace, as, as you were, perhaps you could say it awkwardly that way, there is peace in God's kingdom outside our relationship with God, that is between me and God. There's peace between us, for example, right? like this evening. We're not at each other's throat. We love one another. We're patient with one another, and this is good. We certainly have our sins, to be sure. And that's spills out within our families. We have unbelievers in our families. They see us act towards them with peace as best we can. When we read that, I, I mentioned it before, be at all peace with all men as much as it lies within your power. And so there can be an outward expression of God's kingdom, as the church is clearly an outward expression of God's kingdom, by some acts of peace. It breaks out in homes and communities at times, historically in some cities and even nations, to one degree or another as influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't necessarily happen. Right, We know plenty of times in history where there is no peace, but the church is there and Christians have peace in their heart. So don't confuse the two. That's one of the problems we have in Christian circles today. Is somehow the gospel is supposed to bring social justice. The gospel doesn't bring social justice. It may influence it. I mean, common good. That word has been abused. So the common good or common justice may influence it, to be sure, <clears throat> but it doesn't bring it as such 
That comes ultimately with Christ's second coming. A saving king, verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The picture of a pit is a picture of trouble and difficulty. They were hopeless before the power of the world empires. Their enemies were many, and they were surrounded by their enemies, even in the land. As you know, the coastal cities there of uh, the Canaanites, the, the Philistines in particular, they're literally surrounded by their enemies. They felt boxed in like you're in a pit and you can't get out. Our lives without Christ, in fact, is the life of a pit dweller without water, dying of thirst, wallowing in darkness, refusing and, and dark, wallowing in the darkness and refuse in a deep pit of sin. That's the world. Now, that's not them per se, although it could have been. Many of the Jews weren't necessarily saved. But again, the deliverance that we have is ultimately spiritual. And we'll find its full fruition in the material world at the second coming of Christ. The new body, the new heaven, and a new earth. Today things are bad, and we should not shrink back from warning people about how bad things are, even in the church. And so he describes here how bad things were for them. How set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. It's a bad place to be. You don't want to be in a waterless pit and a desert. It's bad, Zechariah is saying, but you're going to be delivered anyway. No matter how bad it looks, you will be delivered anyway. It looks hopeless. You look surrounded and outnumbered. Christ is delivering us from Satan, his kingdom, from sin and its woes. Praise be to God. That's what it points to, but again, not to the exclusion of finally having victory over death itself at the great resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he mentions the blood of the covenant. You know i got to talk about that, right? Verse 11, as for you also, uh, that is the rest of you, all the Jews, because of the blood of your covenant, because of the blood of your covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two or more people, simplest definition. God is part of this covenant or agreement, and we are on the other half, uh, through Jesus Christ in particular, and that covenant has a promise, and that promise is he will deliver his people. He will save his people from their sins. First, he does that because our king is just, and he fulfills his covenant promises to us. I said I will do it. Jesus is coming. They had lots of impatience back then, as you can imagine, waiting that long for Christ to come. We, too, have to write for Christ to come the second time. We're in the same boat as they are in many ways. And yet God is just, and he is bringing salvation. He is just in having salvation, verse 9, and he will come. He, will, he is not lying. He is telling the truth. Second, that blood is important. To the covenant of grace, of course, because Christ shed his blood for us. Our humble king died and shed his blood to save us from our sins and the consequences of sin and hell and death. So we should rejoice greatly. Promised it, it happened, Jesus came, and we have much of that deliverance to be finally consummated at the second coming of Christ. Blood. Symbolically, it is the need for death to satisfy divine justice. That's what it points to. The Old Testament symbolism, of course, is almost all the sacrifices were of blood, of some shedding of the blood. We read about that in Hebrews. Someone must die for sinning against the Holy King. That's the point. Sacrificial system. Someone must die for sinning against a Holy King. The sacrifices of old were pictures of that need and of that deliverance. 
the deliverance that they got through the sacrificial animal. The animal died in place of the one who brought the animal. It shed its blood. But of course, again, the pious Jews know God's not satisfied with a dead animal. It's like, oh, I'm happy that the animal died instead of a human. That is justice. If your child got murdered, if your wife got murdered, would you be happy if the judge said, well, let's go ahead and kill a goat. That'll work. No, <laughs> I don't think so. You want the culprit. As we know, Christ shed his blood in our stead. And he took upon himself our guilt. Praise be to God. And the best example of that in the Old Testament is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away our sin. The victory of this great king that we rejoice in, brothers and sisters, although described in outward material forms of combat and war, which he did in providence, has its fruition when Christ came and he had victory over the strong man, the devil, and slain him and delivered us from his kingdom into the kingdom of light, out of the pit of darkness into the greatness of God's kingdom and the bountifulness of his table. Praise be to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our king, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is our coming and victorious and humble king. But when he comes a second time, there will no longer be any humility as he showed before. That is, the fullness of his glory will be seen by everyone. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. There will not be any confusion about who he is this time. It will be fully manifested. We long for that day when we live during such difficult times. Our king, he comes in humility to those who are humbled by their sins. Our king comes in victory over our enemies and over our sins, bringing us peace. Our king comes with salvation, shedding his blood for our deliverance. Praise be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rejoice in his humility, his victory, and the salvation. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Praise be to your name, God above. We thank you for this prophecy, and as we know, it was fulfilled several hundred years later. In detail, Jesus said, go get a donkey. Tell the man, Jesus requires a donkey, and he gave it to him. Because Christ is Lord over all and owns all things. And so, God, you came lowly. We look forward for the day, Lord, where you will no longer be lowly, but manifested before the world and make peace between and among all the nations and bring us all to full deliverance of your kingdom. In your name alone we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.